Can we live without the idea of purpose? Should we even try to? Immanuel Kant thought we were stuck with purpose, and while Darwin's theory of natural selection profoundly shook the idea, it was unable to kill it. In fact, the belief in teleology seems to be making a comeback today, as both religious proponents of intelligent design and even some prominent secular philosophers argue that any explanation of life without the idea of purpose is missing something essential. In his book, On Purpose, Michael Roos explores the history of the idea of purpose in philosophical, religious, scientific, and historical thought, from ancient Greece to the present. He argues that three distinct ideas about purpose have been at the heart of Western thought for more than 2,000 years, and then he traces their profound and fascinating implications. Along the way, Roos takes up tough questions about the purpose of life and whether it would be possible to have meaning without it, revealing that purpose is still a vital and pressing issue. Professor Michael Roos is the Lucille T. Workmeister Professor of Philosophy and Director of the History and Philosophy of Science program at Florida State University. He has written or edited more than 50 books, including Darwinism as Religion, The Philosophy of Human Evolution, and The Darwinian Revolution. He's here with me today to discuss his latest book, On Purpose. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Professor Michael Roos to talk about his book, On Purpose. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Just to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in this field? Well, um, I'm a a philosopher, a philosophy professor. Uh, I've been a philosophy professor for 50 years now. As you can tell uh, from my accent, I was born in England and raised in England. But when I was 22, I emigrated to Canada. I arrived in Quebec City, actually, in pouring rain on September the 17th, uh, 1962. I went to McMaster University to do graduate work and ended up at the University of Guelph in 1965, where I stayed until 2000, when I took a job to avoid compulsory retirement uh, down here in Florida. Uh, I've always been interested in, I'm a philosopher of science, um, and I've always been interested in biological science, uh, particularly in evolutionary biology. And that's the area that I've worked on now for pretty much 50 years. Uh, I've because I'm a philosopher, a philosopher of science, uh, I'm part of the generation that was very much influenced by Thomas Kuhn, who stressed that if you want to do good philosophy of science, you've got to do good history of science. And so uh, when I was about 30, I took my first sabbatical in England and retooled as a historian of science too. And so I've written fairly extensively on and around evolutionary theory, Darwinism, and these sorts of things. Uh, When I was about 40, about 1980, I got very much involved in fighting or uh, arguing with creationism, which was a big thing. I was in a court case in Arkansas for uh, an expert witness, uh, uh, these sorts of things. So that's my background as a historian and philosopher of of science with a particular interest in, in biology and an even more particular interest in evolutionary biology. Now, what sort of questions does a philosopher or historian or philosopher ask? Well, I'm not a scientist, so I don't go out and study fruit flies. To take, yeah, to, just to take an example. What I do, and I'm not a sociologist, so I don't go into the lab and, for instance, uh, discuss the sort of uh, relationships in, in, in the lab. I mean, what sort of roles do the graduate students have? Are there 
are there many more women in in biology than there are in physics? All of those sorts of questions. I mean, those are more sociological. Uh, my background is much more, as I say, as a philosopher. So I'm going to be asking the sorts of questions that philosophers ask, namely, what is the nature of biological science? In particular, what is the nature of evolutionary biological science? And is it a science, say, like the physical sciences? Now, that's a philosophy question, not a science question. The scientist, the physicist, goes and looks at his planets or her planets. The biologist goes and looks at his or her fruit flies, and they do the work. Then along comes somebody like me and says, now, are these people thinking in the same sort of way? Or does looking at organisms, for instance, require some kind of special insight or methodology or something like that that is not called for in the case of the physical sciences? And if so, does this mean that biology is, is a better science or a weaker science than the physical sciences? And so, as I say, these are the sorts of questions that I sort of ask as a sort of historian and philosopher of science. And, you know, nothing's written in stone. And I, 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 if somebody said to me, isn't it interesting there's far more women in evolutionary biology than in physics, I wouldn't say, oh, don't tell me that. Uh, I'm not a sociologist. I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested. And I'd, I'd say questions like, well, does this mean, for instance, that more women in the biological sciences, they're going to be more sensitive to, say, gender differences between the fruit flies than they would be if they were, you know, came straight from the physical sciences. So I'm not saying these issues are not important. But what does a philosopher ask them? Well, what about the methodology of thinking? And here, I think, is the point, and this is where this very long-winded way of putting, uh, but I'm an evolutionary biologist, you know, everything takes time. Uh, this is where my interest and the book I wrote on purpose comes in. Because everybody notes, and you can go back to Aristotle, even to Plato on this, that there is something distinctive about biological understanding which you don't find about a physico-chemical understanding. I mean, take let's take, for instance, the moon. The moon's just been a very, actually, a very wonderful full moon we've just had for the last two or three days down here. Now, you might say, well, why... We know what makes the moon work. I mean, that's the sort of questions that physicists ask. They ask about things like Newton, Newtonian gravitational attraction and why doesn't the moon, you know, instead of just circling the Earth, why doesn't the moon fly off into space? Those are physics questions. But the kind of question you don't ask is, well, why does the Earth have a moon? What's the purpose? What's the, what's the point of the moon? I mean, the only answers you're going to give are kind of facetious answers like, oh, well, the moon exists to light the way home for drunken philosophers when they've been out too long. Yeah, it, it, it's a joke, but it's not a scientific answer. On the other hand, if I were looking, say, at a fruit fly, and I, let's say I'm looking at two different kinds of fruit flies. So one kind is very dark, and the other kind is, is, is say, quite light or khaki or something like that then it might make very good sense to say, well, why is this particular species of fruit fly dark? And why is this particular species of fruit fly sandy colored, let's say? And the biologist might say to me, oh, well, the reason is that the dark fruit flies, they feast on dark fruits like plums, damsons, and those sorts of things. Whereas the sandy colored fruit flies, 
they fly around the desert and they, you know, they eat, you know, off herbs and that sort of thing. And this is camouflage because the big problem that they have is, let's say, predators, birds wanting to eat them. And a dark fruit fly against a damson is going to stand out a hell of a lot less than a sandy fruit fly against a damson. And conversely, a sandy fruit fly against the desert is going to stand out a hell of a lot less than a dark fruit fly against the desert. Now, whether they're right or whether they're wrong, and you, you could say, oh, well, fruit flies don't do this, blah, blah, blah. That's not the point. Uh, the point I'm making is, in here, it makes perfectly good sense to say, what is the purpose of, let's say, the dark coloration of fruit fly? Whereas it doesn't make any good sense at all to say, what is the purpose of the moon being so bright? I mean, you could say, why is the moon bright? But what's the purpose? What's the function? What end does it serve? And that doesn't make any sense. So here we've got something really quite interesting. The biological sciences seem to want to make reference to purpose uh, questions and purpose answers, or what Aristotle called final causes, whereas the physico-chemical sciences only want to make reference to causes about what brings it about, not what end. The reason why the moon doesn't fly off is because the force of gravitational attraction pulls it down. Now, you get that kind of explanation in, in the biological sciences. You might say, well, what causes the dark Let's say, what causes the dark color of the fruit flies? And you might want to say, well, it's this particular chemical interacts with that particular chemical because this kind of fruit fly has that kind of gene and the other kind of fruit fly has a difference. Those are all what Aristotle or what Aristotelians would call proximate causes or efficient causes. So you certainly get efficient causes in all of the sciences. But the question is, why do you get final causes in the biological sciences, and of course, in the human sciences as well. I mean, it makes perfectly good sense, for instance, to say, uh, is, I mean, what is the purpose of, let us say, I mean, you're living in Quebec, what is the purpose of the law which insists that all signs must be in French? You might say, well, I don't agree with the purpose. I think it's a bad purpose or something like that. But it's not a silly question. You could say, oh, well, Quebec feels threatened by the, all the Anglos around. And so this is Quebec's way of preserving its distinctive identity. Now, whether it works or not is not the question I'm asking. Anything like that. What, what is really important is you can ask those sorts of purpose questions about humans as well as about, I mean, in human culture, as well as in, in the physical sciences. In fact, I think it's a good point to make that, in fact, the purpose question surely come from the human sciences or from human beings. I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, you see somebody, a kid doing something and you say, what on earth are you doing that for? Why are you doing that? And it, that that's a perfectly good thing. Somehow it seems appropriate to use those kinds of final cause purpose questions and interests that we have about humans in the biological sciences but it doesn't seem appropriate to use them in the physical sciences. Now, you might want to say, well, what the hell? Who cares? If the biological sciences want to do this. That's their business. Physical sciences don't want to do this. That's their business. But there's a big problem, namely the problem of what is we philosophers call the missing goal object. And that's a rather highfalutin term for something which isn't really that complex. The point is, if you're using an efficient cause, 
then you know whatever it is that you referred to actually happened. If I say, why is the fruit fly dark? Uh, and the answer is because it's got this kind of gene rather than that kind of gene. And this kind of gene triggers the production of this kind of chemical, which causes this kind of reaction, which makes the darkness. And if it's got a different kind of gene, a different chemical, different reaction makes the sandiness. Now, the point is, that even if the fruit fly you know, gets eaten immediately, you know that those genes were there and that's fine. But what happens if, for instance, the fruit fly sets off all happy, you know, or nice, you know, rather like the, uh, the, the, the walrus and the carpenter and all those oysters setting off for an afternoon out. And the trouble is the poor old fruit fly gets eaten before he gets to the damson and the, or the poor old fruit fly gets eaten before she gets out into the desert. You're explaining the one fruit fly by being dark, by the fact that it's, you know, it's good camouflage against damson plums, which are dark. And the other fruit fly against the fact that it's good camouflage against sandy, uh, you know, sand dunes, which are bright. And yet, in both cases, the fruit flies never got to the, the damsons, never got. And so you're explaining it in terms of what seems to be non-existent causes. Now, what's going on here? You know, you can't explain something in terms of the non-existent. So flip back to humans, flip back to humans. Why is, you know, let's say a student desperate to get an A in this course? And somebody says, oh, well, they hope to get into medical school. The only way they're going to get into medical school is if they've got a straight A transcript. So they are working hard now to get an A now in order to get into the medical school this time next year. But what happens, for instance, if the student, you know, let's say this summer, goes off on a on another trip or does some sort of intern thing and at the end of the summer says i don't want to be a doctor i don't want to be a doctor i want to be let's say i want to be a lawyer or i want to be a, a stockbroker i want to make money or something like that uh, in other words the students working hard on the a now in order to get into medical school next year but in fact never does get into medical school but we can still say there's no problem there because what caused the student working hard now was the thought of getting into medical school. In other words, what's motivating the student at the moment is not the actual non-existent getting into medical school, but the very real existent desire right now to get into medical school. But of course, nobody thinks that the fruit flies, one little fruit fly says, oh, I want to be black. And the other little fruit fly says, oh, I want to be sandy. And you say to them, well, why? Because I'm going to go and eat off. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a fruit fly. I'm going to go and eat damson plums. And the other one says, I'm a fruit fly. And believe it or not, fruit flies eat cactus. And I'm going to go and eat cactus. Well, of course, they're not thinking that. No, exactly. It, it does seem to present an entirely different picture w within the human sphere. And and as you point out in your book, uh, it's a it's a thing that that humanity has been grappling with for a very long time. And in a lot of cases, religion has kind of filled those blanks for people by by adding a, an outside purpose, even. And um, and so the purpose of your book here that we're talking about um, is is you really trace that history. Of how change or thinking about our purpose has evolved over time. Yes, 
Very much so, very much so. So the point I'm making, Carrie Lynn, is I'm, you know, at the basic level, we get to religion uh, and these things in a moment. So at the basic level, the book is trying to lay the groundwork. I'm trying to say we have these kind of explanations. They seem to be forward looking. They're not necessarily always. But don't think that that means you're explaining in terms of the future. You're explaining in terms of the present. In the case of humans, you're obviously doing it literally by, you know, by the fact that you've got these thoughts about the the future. In the case of fruit flies, you know, fruit flies don't have thoughts, but you're doing it metaphorically because this is the way they behave. They behave as if they were thinking. And that, you know, we often do a lot of as if we were. So what I want to, so what I want to do is explain uh, teleology or final causes, purpose, in, in sort of in natural terms without having to invoke spirits or fruit flies thing or anything like that. Now, of course, what I then want to do, obviously, is swing back to the humans, and that's what I do in the book. And I do, and this brings in the whole question of secularism and those sorts of things. And of course, then I want to raise questions like, well, what is obviously some some things are very easy, aren't they? I mean, what is the purpose of having eyes in order to see? What is the purpose, let us say, of liking to eat? Let's say, what is the purpose of liking to eat? Poutine or you know something that I don't know whether you do actually, but you know a good cook. All right, what is the purpose of wanting liking to eat pizza, but you don't like to eat a pile of excrement? I mean that's kind of vulgar and, and nasty, but no, I'm trying to make a very serious point. Why is it that you're perfectly you you know you say yeah I'd love to have a piece of pizza, but if somebody said well here's a nice pile of poo <laughs> I've just put it in the microwave and it's all ready to it's hot and steaming I very much suspect that you'd say not me now what, you know and so obviously but the point is it's easy to explain that isn't it because the simple fact is uh, eating pizza is good for you and eating poo is not good for you and so you can see why your biology has made you that sort of way now, what I, what I want to do then, of course, as a philosopher, is start to move into issues like ethics and those sorts of things. Why do we think morally? And then, of course, as a philosopher of science, philosopher of religion, I then want to move on from ethics onto religion. And I ask questions about purpose. And can you have, do you have to have religion in order to have purpose? Or can you have life which is purpose uh, without religion? So, as I say, these things are all very much a progression. And talking, you might think, well, goodness, why spend, you philosophers, why do you have to spend 100 pages talking about fruit flies? <laughs> well, I want to talk about God. <laughs> and the answer is, it's like any, any field. You say, hang on, friend, learn to walk before you try to run. In other words, let's get the basics under your belt and get to know them properly and deal with these issues, and then, as it were, move on sequentially. So, I mean, ethics, I think, however you do it, is fairly fairly straightforward, particularly from a biological point of view, namely that, you know, if <laughs> what did Benjamin Franklin say when he signed the, the, the Declaration of Independence? Now then, gentlemen, we must all hang together, otherwise, assuredly, we will all hang separately. In other words, <laughs> you know, working together 
is a good thing from a biological point of view. And of course, what's interesting is despite all the fighting that humans do, we are an incredibly social species. Look at us right now. Here, here are you and I chatting away quite happily. I mean, if we were orangutans, we wouldn't be doing this because orangutans are very asocial. But humans, even in the internet age, even more so in the internet age, you try to run a class now. Those little buggers have got nothing but iPhones. But what are they doing? They're communicating with others. They're talking to their boyfriends or their mums or they're looking at the news. Or I mean, in other words, they're, they're in the human world. So humans. It seems to be our first, no, um, first order of business, actually, with technology is to expand our ability to communicate. Absolutely. But notice how all this technology, I mean, you know, you might say, yes, but these kids go around. They don't even know where they are because they've got earphones on and they're listening. That's true. But notice at another level, they're very much integrated into the, you know, the, the meme pool. Let's call it that. In other words, they're very much part and parcel of being part of human. So as I say, something like uh, something like uh, ethics, I think, is fairly easy. But then you push on but to the very distinctive things, and I hardly have to say to somebody in Quebec, which of course so was for so many years, at least until you know the, the sort of secular revolution of the nineteen sixties and so, which where Quebec was an intensely religious society. And of course I live in the American South. And boy, are we, you know, religion, my goodness gracious me, on a Sunday morning, you know, you can't sleep in because of the bloody bells going. Um, so, then the, so then the question is, well, what the hell is the purpose of religion? I mean, it, and of course, one answer would be, well, because it's true. <laughs> well, yes, but I mean, I don't know when you last saw God or when, you know, when Jesus Christ last, you know, <laughs> turned up for you at, at supper time or something like that. Uh, you know, so then, the, you know, obviously, religion is, is let's say, something a lot more amorphous than, let's say, eating a piece of pizza. I mean, you know, eating, why eat a piece of pizza? Well, you know, because if you don't eat, you're going to die. But why go to church? Why think that Jesus, you know, the body and blood of Jesus uh, appears when the priest, you know, in the mass, even though it doesn't appear? Why, you know, why? Uh, be against homosexuals? Why think that women should obey their husbands? All of these sorts of things. Well, because of religion. And so here I think we've got some interesting questions, which certainly bear on the sorts of things that you're particularly interested in. Namely, does religion have a purpose? Does it have a function? And I, I, I guess my answer would be, well, I think in certain circumstances, it certainly does, and it certainly has. I think anybody, let's say, who looks, let's say, at the European Middle Ages, let's talk about the European Middle Ages, life was pretty bloody awful. You didn't live very long. You were hungry a lot of the time. It was red. If you had a, a, a famine, if, you know, if the crops failed, half of you starved. Uh, there were diseases. There were uh, all these awful, awful, awful things. So what helped people to keep going? What helped people to give meaning to their lives? Because if you look at people in the Middle Ages, you don't necessarily get the impression of people going round looking, you know, just really glum all the time, as though, you know, as though, let's say, as all of us leftists looked last year when Trump won the election. My God, if you wanted to see people who were miserable, well, yeah, 
go onto any university campus except for Liberty U. <laughs> uh, but I mean, so, uh, but you know, the Middle Ages, of course there was misery. But at, at the same time, clearly, there was a lot of joy, a lot of happiness, a lot of meaning to life, a lot of festivals, a great joy about having children. And even, and if you look at the books, you know, even, you know, dying was the great social event of all time. And so, you ask, well, why was this? Well, obviously, because they were caught up and they had this very elaborate Catholic religion, which which infused their lives with meaning, that there was a purpose to life, that there was meaning, that you weren't just here. And, you know, that's all it is to it. Having children is a good thing. God wants you to have children. Falling in love, having a wife, uh, raising a family. These are good things. This is these you working hard. Didn't Jesus tell us to use our talents? Obeying God, listening to the priest, didn't St. Paul tell us to do just these sorts of things? Helping a neighbor, didn't St. Paul say faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is charity, love, uh, and death? Well, death is, is scary, it's frightening, but didn't St. Paul, didn't Jesus say, you know, to the, the worst of the sinners on the cross, tonight you will be with me in heaven. So clearly religion had a purpose and had a function. But of course, we don't live in the Middle Ages, do we? We live in, you know, we live in the 21st century. And so then the question is, things had purposes, but maybe we don't need them any longer. I mean, you know, things, that's the way things have happened. The appendix was needed at one point, but nobody needs the appendix now. Maybe religion is something which is uh, out of date, something which we don't need, something which has just run its course. Maybe it's even counterproductive, like the appendix when people get appendicitis. And certainly I think a lot of us would feel that there are times when religion certainly is counterproductive. I mean, I hardly have to tell anybody coming from Canada uh, about the horrendous issues there have been with the Catholic priesthood and brotherhood over the ab ab abuse of, of children. The Christian brothers in Newfoundland, a case in point, a horrendous sexual abuse of children, you know, by people, not people, I, I, I would say, who were inherently bad, but were caught in a situation where they were supposed not to have sex, where they lived all men together in isolated sorts of ways. And, you know, they broke down and did things that they very much should not have done. And whilst I don't want to exonerate them or say that they were not responsible, I think, you know, you'd have to be blind not to say that the, let us say, the unnatural way in which a Christian brother was living in Newfoundland would be something which is, uh, you know, which leads to people doing these sorts of things. So there's a case where you might want to say, and obviously somebody like Richard Dawkins would say very strongly, where not only has religion out, outlived its purpose, but it's become positively non-functional, counter-purposefulness. And so now the question is, first of all, obviously, there are sociological questions about the and psychological questions about the extent to which, you know, the let's say, I mean, I just talk about the Catholics, not because they're, you know, inherently worse than others, but because it's so easy, you know, to, to pick on this particular issue. I mean, sociologists and psychologists clearly are going to weigh in on the extent to which trying to live a celibate life is going to be something 
which leads to sexual abuse. Because we all know in England, there was always, as I was growing as a kid, there were all sorts, the vicars who were scoutmasters were always doing naughty things to the kids. And I suspect most of those vicars were married. So, you know, uh, so there, there are those sorts of questions. But there are also questions, I think, which are raised where if, in fact, you do think that religion is <coughs> counterpurposefulness or counterpurposeful in some sort of sense, can you live without religion? Can you have a life of purpose without religion? And those are some of the issues that I deal with at the end of the book. And, you know, in the best of all possible ways, my final chapter of this book is the first chapter of my next book, which is going to be a little book on the meaning of life, which is going to deal explicitly with issues like can one have a life of purpose without, not only without Jesus, but without Yahweh, without uh without Muhammad, without, you know, without the Dalai Lama, without it reincarnation, without any of these sorts of things. If we, can we have a life of purpose if we came from an eternity of oblivion? And, you know, in a year or two, in my case, probably much, much less than yours for me than for you, because I'm 70, 77 already. But, you know, are we going to an eternity of oblivion? Does it make sense to talk of purpose, as it were, between the two endpoints? And so these are the sorts of issues I'm, I'm trying to deal with. I, in fact, I want to argue, yes, I think one can. I'm not sure that everybody's going to think that this is enough, but I think then I'd say, well, I'm sorry, friend, you better take this because you're sure as hell not going to get anything else. But you can have purpose, I think, have purpose in trying to understand it. Having purpose, doing what I'm doing at the moment. I'm a teacher. I, you know, I want to spread. I've got ideas. I want people to listen to what I'm saying. I don't want people to agree with me. I don't mind if people say, oh, Michael Roos, you're full of that poo you tried to serve up to Carrie Lynn 15 minutes ago. You know, I, I, I don't know why this poo keeps coming up with you, Michael Roos, but, you know, enough is enough. I mean, so I don't mind. I mean, I really don't. If somebody listens to me and says, yeah, I just don't buy this. What I do mind is if somebody listens to me and says, I have never heard anything more boring in my whole life. This is like, this is like, you know, uh, Stephen Miller, uh, you know, what's his name, you know, that uh, or a politician getting up and explaining to me why, you know, oh my God, you know, why we need uh, an extra hydro dam in northern Ontario, you know, <laughs> I'm sure we do, but I don't need to listen to this. It's kind of boring. Uh, if anybody is listening to me and says, oh my God, you know. <laughs> Let's go. Let's all go out for pizza and turn the radio off or whatever. Uh, then I failed. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there is purpose. I think you can have a lot of fun in this life by getting out and doing things, by trying out ideas. And of course, I don't think you're turning your back on the best parts of Christianity, serving others. <laughs> the greatest now abides these three faith, hope, and charity. And the greatest of these is charity. And as I say to my students, I say to them, what the, Plato says to you know, his young people in the Republic, the only truly happy person is the person who is serving other human beings. I always say, if you think of a group like, say, a philosophy department, and you think of, divide them into two, the ones who are always whining because they've been made to teach courses they didn't want to teach, or they didn't want to be on the library committee, and that sort of thing. And the other ones are the ones who say, you say to them, oh, Bill, do you think you could teach this course next time? I realize it's a, 
uh, nine o'clock in the morning. But somebody's got to do it because that's when the clock is. And Bill says, up yours, Mike. Well, of course I will. And then you say to yourself, OK, that's one way to divide the department. Now, divide the department between the people you'd say are basically happy human beings and the people you think are basically not. And I'll bet you Bill's in the happy people and Fred, who whines and moans about being having to do library orders, is in the unhappy people. So as I say, I, I do think there's purpose. And I think that purpose pays off because I think that a life of inquiry and a life of, of uh, and a life of uh, service are, you know, are the way are purposeful and the way to happiness. I mean, I'm a philosopher. What does Immanuel Kant say? Two things fill me, you know, in glory or awe: the he starry heavens above and the internal law within. Finding out the way the world is and discovering what you ought to do within. And I, you know. Uh, you know, folks, you don't need any more purpose than that. I yeah, I agree with you, and I think um, I think every atheist I've ever met would agree that life has purpose outside of some kind of uh, metaphysical being giving you purpose. Um, it seems I think that's true. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think on the other hand, you do get some people who are able to ride with it, and others who are just gloomy. Some are saying, oh, you know, they're evil, Eeyore. You know, in, 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 in a mill, you know, oh, yes, there's no purpose. We've got to keep going. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it's not, you know, I don't know why we bother. And, you know, it's all going to come. And the other one who says, well, uh, sure, it probably will come to an end. But I'm having a damn good time at the moment. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd like another piece of pizza. <laughs> well, in your book, um, you you talk about you basically divide the approaches to this question into three different camps: uh, the Plato camp, the Aristotle camp, and then the Immanuel Kant camp. And I was wondering if you, if you could kind of describe to us um, what those three approaches are. Okay, well, you see, this is the thing: purpose for Plato means an intelligence is imposing it. So, in other words, even the fruit flies. A, a, a Platonist or a modern-day Platonist would say it was God, whether it's the Christian God or the Jewish God or or whatever God. But it was God ultimately who said these fruit flies are going to be black, these fruit flies are going to be sandy. Now you know God works through secondary causes, but the Platonist says God did it. The Aristotelian is more inclined to say no, there is purpose, but somehow. It's part of the innate nature of the world that things happen this sort of way. Now, you might say, yeah, but it can't be because, you know, Descartes taught us that, you know, the physical world is just the physical world and uh, the mental world is something separate. So the physical world can't have purpose because it's just molecules in motion. Well, I think today a modern day Aristotelian would say, hang on, my friend. We know that you can't separate mind and body like that. That in fact, you know, at some level, mind and body have got to be a lot more integrated. And there are all sorts of remarkable phenomena, uh, like quantum entanglement, where you know you alter a molecule here and you get another molecule way across the you know across the universe, altering simultaneously. When you now that shows that there's information there and that there's more to life than meets the eye, if you know what I mean. So I think that that would be an Aristotelian. 
a Kantian would be somebody who presented it very much as I was doing earlier on in the discussion, probably because that's the one to which I inclined most myself, namely that at some level, uh, we the only purpose you're going to get is from humans, and we impute the purpose uh, to others. Now, you know, I'm an atheist, or at least I'm certainly atheistic about Jesus Christ. I, I do not think that Jesus rose on the third day, and I don't think he was a blood sacrifice for non-existent Adam and Eve, uh, you know, three days earlier. So I'm certainly an atheist there. I, I think I would describe myself much more as a, an agnostic or a, a skeptic in the sort of lines of almost somebody like David Hume when it came to ultimate purposes. And if somebody said, oh, well, you haven't ruled out, you know, somehow that there is, you know, the whole universe at some level is a living organism and mind and body. Well, I have to say, yeah, but you have to, you know, you have to give me the cash value of what that means. But I'm certainly not ruling that out in, in some sort of sense. No, I, you know, if you said to me, well, life keeps popping up here, there and everywhere. And there's multiverses. And given enough time, given enough space, you know, something like humans is going to reoccur and somebody like you. So <clears throat> somewhere, you know, <laughs> far, far away, you know, <laughs> in, in a galaxy far, far away, as it were, <laughs> um, you know, you're going to pop into existence again. I say I very much don't expect it to happen, <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't know how I rule it out. I mean, I don't, as I say, I think we're realizing the body-mind problem is such a, a complex and difficult issue that I certainly would not want... I mean, I'm not quite sure what being an atheist in a context like that would mean, because by and large, atheism wasn't a term which was invented or devised to, to cover that sort of situation. So I think you can be pretty much atheistic about what you're doing down here. and that I regard myself as that. I mean, I, I do not do my teaching or my talking because i'm hoping to you know gain brownie points with jesus you know for when i meet some peter uh, and that sort of thing but if somebody said to me yes but don't you think uh, jbs haldane said i think the universe is not only queerer than i suppose but queerer than i can suppose you know i have a certain empathy for that because i think it i think it's a kind of modesty and if i you know i don't want to sound preachy or pompous or whatever it now but I think it's the kind of modesty that a philosopher should have. I think a philosopher should always have a little voice in the back of your head saying, Mike, don't bugger it up. Don't, Mike, you could be wrong. You, Mike, you be very careful. You may be dead wrong. And if I think of a philosopher, it doesn't mean to say I go through life being neurotic or worried or, or anything like that. I don't. I mean, I certainly don't. But I think if a philosopher doesn't, at the back of his head, have a little voice saying, Mike, don't get too cocky. You could be mistaken. Then I don't think you're a very good philosopher. Or maybe not a very good scholar in general, actually. That's right. Yeah. But you also talk about, um, uh, so there was, there's these three branches of thinking or branches of approaches to the question. Um, and then, of course, as we gain more scientific knowledge, beginning as early with the scientific revolution, but also uh, you focus quite a bit on um, Darwin and his ideas about evolution as well. That that seems to really change the paradigm about asking about the question of purpose. Can you talk about well, that a little bit as well? well I, I, I think it does. And it, you know, it's like I a real philosopher. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. I mean, obviously, at some level, I think philosophy, 
Darwin gives us a much better sense of how it is that those fruit flies can be black or sandy through natural causes. Until Darwin, we didn't have a grasp of how that could happen. And so consequently, I think there was a huge pressure to go back to the platonic answer and say there had to be an intelligence there somewhere. I don't think, I mean, Richard Dawkins, I think he's right when he said before, only after Darwin was it possible to be an intelligently informed atheist. I don't, I don't think it means you have to be an atheist, but I think Dawkins is absolutely right. So I see Darwin as a crucial component in the in the thing. And I, I you know, I prefer to say can Kant hyphen Darwin position or something along those lines. Uh, so I think at that level, that, that's that. Uh, at another level, I mean, I think that Darwin certainly makes it, as I say, makes it possible to be a, a non-believer. I certainly think Darwin makes it even less likely that a platonic position is right, namely, you know, an intelligence, because you don't need it. You know, you just don't need it. And, you know, there's all sorts of problems with intelligences, like or why did they make for such cruelty and all of those things? But whether or not this excludes, as I say, some kind of overall life force, you know, that, that at some level, well, as I say, part of the problem I have here is I'm not quite sure what an overall life force would be like. But I don't think in this day of, of you know, quantum entanglement, and, you know, basically our failure to solve the body-mind problem, uh, it rules these sorts of things out. But as I, you know, so the world is, you know, is not only strange, but probably a hell of a lot stranger, not than, only that we think it is, but that we could even, could even think that it is. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, weirdo things, aren't there? Like electrons, which are both, you know, particle-like and wave-like. Well, you know, what are they, what are they really? And you're told, well, you can't answer that question. Well, fair enough, but what are they really? So I, you know, I think, I mean, personally, I, for me, this makes the whole thing very exciting. I mean, I listen to great music or I read great literature or, or, or great art. And somehow when I hear a great, great music, a great, let's say, a great Mozart opera, you know, I say, oh, my God, the, we humans have produced such perfection, such meaning. Does it mean anything? I have no reason to think that it does. But anybody who just turns away and says, oh, well, that's it. It's just molecules in motion. Yeah, I have a lot of time for them. I mean, I think anybody who is not awed by the mystery of creation. I mean, Dawkins, you know, Dawkins says this, you know, he says there is a, a mystical aspect to nature that, you know, anybody who is not in awe of nature shouldn't be a scientist. And I think that's true. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I've seen my, my colleagues who, you know, go up to Algonquin Park. You know, for me, if I look at turtles, one turtle a summer is enough. I want to go back to base camp, you know, for a Molson's uh, you know, and a detective story. But I've got friends who go up there uh, and spend the summer looking at these turtles. And for them, somehow, I won't say it's mystical because it's not, but it just transcends, you know, understanding it transcends just molecules. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I don't need God to do this, but I, I, do, I do feel a very strong sense of purpose. And if you want to say, yes, but that's all there is to it, it's all absurd in some ontological sense, I say, I've got no answer to that. I agree with you. On the other hand, if somebody says, well, I just have to, you know, I think being an agnostic requires a certain humility and saying, I just don't know. 
then I think that I, I'm very empathetic about I mean, I, I look upon this, please understand, I look upon this as entirely secular in the sense that I don't think it involves Jesus. I don't think it involves Yahweh. Uh, I don't think it means that, you know, that society should be allowed to legislate against gays or, or, or you know, any of these sorts of things or turn a blind eye on sexual harassment. I'm not saying any of these sorts of things, you know. I'm so, so I'm not, I, I, I'm all in favor of an entirely secular unit, an entirely secular society. That I, but that's fine. Uh, it's a question of where you go as a philosopher, ontologically, and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you too about um, in chapter ten, you talk about the additional problem that the consideration of sentience brings to the question. Um, because there um, we can talk about the fruit flies or, or other animals, but with human beings, um, or arguably to an extent, uh, certain higher order animals as well. But with human beings, especially, we have this um, additional layer of. Well, I, I, yeah, they do and they don't. I, 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 human beings, especially. I mean, anybody who's had dogs, because I'm an Englishman knows that dogs have consciousness at some level, that they can feel, they can have, a, they've got a sense of humor, that they can certainly feel guilt. I mean, here comes my poo again, yet again, you know. <laughs> I come in and, uh, and I find that the dogs have, you know, fixed dinner for us all and it's on the carpet steaming, you know. <laughs> I, I, if there's not a look of guilt in, in Scruffy McGruff, our little canteria, there sure soon will be. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I mean, but I think that this fits in with evolution. That's what I would expect as an evolutionist. I don't expect, here we've got molecules right now, and then, oh, bingo, here we've got, you know, Pierre Trudeau or uh, Justin Trudeau, thinking being sort of thing, you know, bingo. Um, no, it doesn't work that way. I mean, I'm an evolutionist. I think that you're going to have, you know, you're going to have gradations of, uh, 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 of consciousness, uh, but all that... It, uh, both in humans, but certainly, I mean, well, in humans as they as they develop it from being children, but also certainly across the things. I don't think that fruit flies think. I certainly don't think oysters think. On the other hand, if you say to me, well, what about you know fish? What about reptiles? What about you know what about? And as you move up, well, I don't want to say that you know that they're Kantians or Aristotelians. But I, I think anybody who thinks that, for instance, the work that they've done now on the great apes, bonobos and these, um, don't, don't want to say that at some level these animals think in very sophisticated ways. I mean, they're just, I mean surely they're just plain wrong. <laughs> right. Wow. Well, um, you had mentioned uh, or alluded to briefly before uh, the direction you're going with your um, with your next project and how it kind of, um, takes off where you end with this book. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more then about your concluding thoughts about finding purpose and morality. Well, I'm not, in the next book, I mean, I've got it all laid out. Uh, I very much, first, the first question I want to ask in, in the next book, and I've already talked about the Middle Ages and, 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 and compared it to the present. So one of the things I want to do as a historian and philosopher is look at why we've lost our lost our confidence, if you like, in religion, why we've lost our confidence in ultimate purposes and those sorts of things. If, 
I mean, I'm, I'm editing a book on atheism at the moment. And frankly, we can't find anybody to write on atheism in the Middle Ages because, by and large, there just weren't any atheists in the Middle Ages. I mean, and so, yeah, but, yeah, uh, if I say, well, I mean, I just had somebody say to me, oh, I want to write, I mean, literally say to me, I want to write on atheism in the working classes in British Columbia at the beginning of the last century. Well, you know, whether I want something quite that narrow is, is another matter. I, but actually, I'm rather excited by the idea. But the point is, I don't say, oh, my goodness, there were atheists in British Columbia. I mean, you know, I, I expect that. So my first question is, why did this come about, secularization and you know, the discovery of people like Lucretius? And what role did science play in this? Darwin, what role did Darwin play in this? And all of these things. And I want to say, you know, as I've been suggesting already, it's a bit more complex. Darwin didn't make atheism true. Maybe Darwin made atheism possible, but that's another matter. So there's that. Then I want to look at the whole question of religion. And I want to say, well, to what extent does religion give us the answers? And actually, I'm going to look not just at Christian religion, but I also like to look at Buddhism as a contrast, because Buddhism doesn't have a creator God, and yet it does have a transubstantiation and the idea of achieving nirvana and these things. So you certainly get purpose there. So I think it'd be very interesting to look at what purpose means or can mean to a religious person. Then what I want to do is move on to look at people, I think, like uh, Julian Huxley in the last century and Edward O. Wilson in this century, people who, and I think Dawkins to a certain extent, who want to say, well, evolution in itself gives us purpose, that evolution is progressive, it led up to humans, and that therefore clearly then our moral obligations are to preserve, to cherish humans, to make sure that they don't fall away, that, you know, for instance, the rainforests in, in, uh, in Brazil, we must preserve these because humans need the, the variation and, and these sorts of things. So I want to look at this. I, and I, I, I'm a little bit critical of a lot of this because I, I, I'm very dubious about notions of progress. I'm not, I'm certain, I mean, my God, I mean, any country which elects uh, Donald Trump as president you know, is not, in, in my opinion, a, a society on its way to, to a progressive happy ending. <laughs> the fallacy of um, linear you know, progress, hey? Yeah, I, really, I mean, really, really. I mean, you know, you know, yet, of course, there is progress, isn't there? I mean, you're a woman, and 150 years ago, you sure as hell wouldn't have been given the kind of uh, education, the powers, the authority or whatever that you're interviewing me, and I don't say to you, oh, well, sorry, Carrie Lynn, but you have a, a man working there. I'm not really very comfortable talking about these sort. I mean, we've moved on, so there is progress. Oh, there is. So yes. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at some of those, but then I want to look and say, well, if there isn't, where do you go from there? And at a certain level, I, I, I'm not an existentialist, but I was always, as, from youth on, very influenced by Sartre's existentialism as humanism. You know, the idea that what we, that basically we're responsible for our own fates and there ain't no external helps, that what we do with this life is what we make of this life. And, you know, what did Shakespeare say? The fault there, Brutus, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. I've been a college prof now for over 50 years, and without wanting to show off, I feel as my life obviously is going to come to an end. I do feel I've had purpose in my life. I've been lucky. I've lived in a part, I lived in the half of 
the 20th century where there weren't two world wars. I lived in Canada most of my life, which I think is a is a, a wonderfully decent society where people care about each other and the all of these sorts of things. So I've been very fortunate. I've had my health. Uh, uh, I've had, you know, I know my, my first marriage wasn't, but my second marriage has been, you know, sublimely, sublimely happy. My wife is, she's not really across the room nodding and saying, okay, holding up a big, you know, a big, my wife is actually not across the room, holding up a, a, a big chart saying, and now praise your wife Lizzie. I, I will praise my wife Lizzie. I don't need the I don't need the placard. <laughs> but I've been hugely fortunate. But at the same time, I feel, you know, from a Sartre point of view, that I've been able to find purpose in my life because I've been able to create it. And you know, it, it's so much more worthwhile than if I'd spent my life, you know, a, a job here, a job there, and you know, always a little bit on the shifty side. Yeah, you know, I'd had, you know, a couple of illegitimate children that I hadn't bothered to care about very much. And I, I left my first family and, you know, they they really had to live, at, you know, down at the Salvation Army. And, you know, I, I think that would have been a life which, without without proper purpose. And I, I haven't had that sort of life. So, uh, I, as I say, I'm not showing off. I'm just trying to, you know, find some understanding of how you can achieve purpose. And obviously, if I felt the kind of life that I've been leading didn't lead to purpose. I shouldn't be talking now, or at least, you know, I'd be the biggest hypocrite that the, the world has ever known. But then maybe I should have gone into politics. <laughs> Anyhow, there you go. <laughs> uh, well, Michael, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I want to thank you so much. This has been a really fun interview. Thank you so much for coming to talk about your book. Oh, uh, I, that's wonderful. And Carrie Lynn, I'm so happy. Just at last moment, I heard a Canadian inflection in your voice. So I know that you really are genuine. You really do exist. <laughs> and you're not a, member of the, not a member of the Tea Party who's interviewing me, pretending to be a nice, decent humanist but, uh, who's now going to take all of this and use it on Twitter and give it to Donald Trump so he can let it all out. And chop it into it pieces really nice and make party. a yeah, video. That, no, no, no. <laughs> Nobody at the Tea Party. Nobody in the Tea Party could mimic an authentic Canadian. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. I'm actually, I find that fantastic that uh, you have some experience here in Quebec as well. My roots are American originally, funnily enough, um, but I've been in Canada since I was uh, two years old. So very close to you. I, 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 you, I, you sound okay, there you are. Very close to me. Oh, you're not that old, Harry Lynn. You're not that old. Don't be that old. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. We'll say goodbye. Uh, goodbye to you. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Professor Michael Roos about his book, On Purpose. You can follow him on Facebook for updates about his speaking engagements and further publications if you search for Michael Roos, spelt R-U-S-E. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and follow the New Books Network on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. We also now have a handle just for New Books and Secularism as well. I believe it's at New Books Secularism. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E. L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D, where I generally post about science fiction and science and tech news. Did you find this book fascinating? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye, until my next conversation about new books in secularism.